best. We're building the best internet talk radio on the planet. Talkzone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins with my co-host, Susie Robbins. You can email us with any questions or comments at doclarryrobbins at AOL.com or visit our website at www.headachedrugs.com. We have an interesting show today, and I thought we'd start with temper tantrums. Temper tantrums in kids, are they always just benign or mild? And there was an interesting research study where children who have long, frequent, or aggressive temper tantrums may be at risk for depression or other disorders. The researchers said that tantrums were often the sign of a sick, hungry, or overstimulated kid. For most parents, they're a normal part of development, and we should view them as normal. But if they're having extreme tantrums consistently, if almost every time they're having a tantrum, they're hurting themselves or other people, that's a reason to go and talk to your pediatrician. Of the tantrums, the researchers said the tantrums in which children harm themselves were most often associated with depression and should be considered serious. If it gets to the point, the researchers said, where the parent is uncomfortable leaving the house because they're so fearful of the child hurting themselves or having a tantrum, they really should seek help. Now, classically, we talk about different types of temper tantrums. There's a regular three-year-old temper tantrum, and it's short and it's over, versus the child with bipolar uh, who has severe, severe anger. And usually what they're doing is they're rooting around first for something to be angry about. You can almost see it in their eyes. They get there's this feral, F-E-R-A-L, feral, wolf-like look in their eyes. They're looking for something to be angry about. And then they go into an insane anger. Uh, some of the severely bipolar kids at age five, six, seven will grab a fork or a knife and uh, come at their mom, and their voice gets different. You know, they'll be saying, uh, you know, I want to kill you, I want to kill you, I want to kill you. That's not your normal temper tantrum. Normal tem- temper tantrums, the kids aren't killing anybody or grabbing knives or forks. They might throw something or um, roll around on the ground, but it's not the bipolar. There is, by the the way, we've talked about this before, a great website and organization, Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation, C-A-B-F, and they have a very good website. Susie, now you have kids. What do you think about uh, temper tantrums? Well, I think we can all relate if we've had young kids that, unless you're really, really lucky, most kids on occasion will have a temper tantrum. You know, I think we can all think of the time in the grocery store standing at the checkout and where the candy is usually featured and one of your kids wanting some candy and you're at the end of your rope and you just want to get the groceries paid for and go home and you say no and they get very angry because you've said no to the candy. And I think that's all quite normal. But I can think of an experience that I had with my daughter when she was three or four. It was actually a few times it came up um, that I had given her Sudafed for a head cold. And I actually can remember one situation we were at her older brother's soccer game and she wasn't feeling that great. But she had some, she had a head cold and I had given her some Sudafed before we left. 
And during the course of the game, she was just angry, kicking, crying, and it really wasn't like her. And I didn't put it together that day, but down the road when I had given her some Sudafed on another occasion, the same kind of behavior came up. And I, in retrospect now, and maybe you can add your point to this, Larry, is I think the Sudafed might have, for whatever reasons, uh, kicked her into a temper tantrum. Well, it's it's a good point. Uh, a lot of times kids get, and adults, but opposite reactions to drugs. And Sudafed particularly has a lot of psychological reactions. Some people get tired with it. More often you get wired or nervous. And some people will get off the wall and up all night and uh, or really angry or mean. So, you know, none of these drugs are totally benign or, or mild in kids. I've actually seen uh, kids with temper tantrums for, from uh, just regular Advil or Tylenol. It's not that common, but they can get them. But Susie, isn't temper tantrums, the early ones, around age two or three, sort of a normal part of development? I would say definitely. You know, when the baby is born, uh, the baby and the mother are constantly together and, you know, it's almost as if it's one person. And then as the baby grows and grows, it becomes more detached knowing that it is a separate entity. And certainly by the time a child is approaching two, they are becoming fast, more and more becoming their own person. You know, one way I can think of, um, think of a little toddler who's learning to walk pretty well, and I'm sure we've all seen this, uh, where the toddler is walking and then he can almost start running and he starts running away from his parents. And we've all seen it in the malls where the parent has to race up and catch the child and kind of pull him up in his arms. That the child is saying, come and get me, you can't get me. But I think at that age the child really wants the parent to come and get them and pick them up, but they're kind of teasing with the parent that the parent can't get them. Yeah, it's, and nowadays the parents have leashes on the kids in, in the malls. Those are um, pretty funny looking. But I think that, um, it, it, yeah, the, it's a normal part of breaking away the first adolescence, if you will, around age two or three. And, um, you know, when we see kids who don't go through that or don't go through the breaking away at adolescence, don't separate, I think uh, doesn't lack of separation uh, cause a lot of problems later on in adult life. Susie, what do you think? Well, you know, you just mentioned a moment ago about um, first adolescence, and I don't know if I would call a toddler a first adolescent, but certainly an adolescent you could say is going through a second separation from their parents. Um, you know, when kids get to the age of 12, 13, 14, you know, there's usually some, there can be some discourse in the house because the the young teen is trying to break away, but at the same time work with the parent or, you know, is living under the same roof as the parent and is not obviously yet an adult. So it is a trying time for both the young child and for the young teen in separating, but also very necessary. Yeah, I think it's crucial. If I see uh, adults who haven't separated from mommy, uh, they never really broke away from the nest. Uh, they either don't get married or they get married and they end up with this um, weird relationship where mom and their wife, for instance, say it's a guy who never separated from his mom, 
they're all enmeshed in, uh, it's not clearly, uh, you know, they're still sort of married to their mom, and it doesn't end up being uh, great as being actualized as an adult. Some of these uh, people say a man never broke away or is dependent on the mom. They end up with what we call a dependent personality disorder, where they really um, are very dependent, and when uh, they're so fearful of the mom getting old and dying because they are very much overly dependent. And we should clarify that when we say a young man has not separated from his, his mother, that doesn't mean he hasn't moved out and gotten his own apartment lives separately from mom. It's more of a it's a psychological connection um, that they have. Not to say that that adult children should not have connections to their parents. I think uh, it's still very very important. Um, but the work of a young person is to be able to separate and to move on in terms of finding a partner for themselves and, and creating their own new family. Um, but still being able to have a warm relationship with their parents. Very well said. Well, the next study is an interesting study. I love studies that refute what we normally think or the going mantra that this is one way and then they refute it. And normally we think that people with lower incomes, lower socioeconomic, are more likely to have suicide. Well, here comes a good study where money, marriage, and education make for a lethal mix for patients with psychiatric problems, Danish Danish researchers report. People who had been admitted to a hospital for psychological care were more likely to commit suicide later on if they had higher incomes, higher years of education, were more fully employed and married. They said that the suicide risk is associated, generally it's thought of with low income, unemployment, Uh, low education, but this study shows that that may not be true. People with only a primary school education were almost 50% less likely to commit suicide than those who had graduated from graduate school. Now, people who become ill psychologically often experience a decline in their social status. Richer, employed, educated, and married psychiatric patients may feel more stigmatized and shameful about having a psychological illness. And also, often, uh, depression particularly leads to loss of job, loss of self-esteem, and lower income and and less money. And I think that that sets people up for suicide. Well, you know what you just mentioned uh, about the article saying that the loss of income, employment, or a spouse through death or divorce all increase suicide risk and I would think that would make sense because in all of those scenarios, the person is losing um, people, either a spouse, uh, people that they work with, which in fact then would probably add to the person feeling more isolated. And I would think somebody who is more isolated, not having or having a loss of connections, that is certainly could increase the risk. In some ways, we're simplifying suicide as uh, a risk factor, socioeconomic, uh, but it's very complicated. Suicide rates differ according to ages. It is a major uh, leading cause of death in the United States, and that's why we talk about it. The other thing about suicide, it leaves fallout, a lot of anger and guilt uh, and depression among survivors. 
So if we can spot it, mostly suicide is a side effect of depression, severe depression, uh, untreated or undertreated depression. So mostly um, what we can do is recognize depression and get people treated if we can. Sometimes it's untreatable, and people have maybe a borderline personality disorder. They get into their 30s, nothing's worked, medicines don't work. Uh, therapy doesn't work, and it's sad, and they're suicidal, and it's almost understandable, but it is very sad. Booze? And how about that? the segment of society of women who uh, go through childbirth and then suffer severe postpartum depression, and that a, a percentage of those women then commit suicide soon or some point after the baby is born? Uh, this is something that wasn't spoken about a generation ago, but is much more talked about and seen now. No, they used to couch that under these cute little terms, the baby blues. You know, baby blues, it sounds like a, a rock band from the 70s or something, but what it is is severe depression, and it's horrible. If anybody's been to severely depressed, you know that it's the worst thing in the world. And a side effect is suicide. And also, when we look economically at what depression does in this country, we lose 60, 70, 80 billion dollars a year at least through loss of job or decreased effectiveness. People may not necessarily lose their job, but they go to work and they just sit around and they're not nearly, they, they're working at half mass. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Now, more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host, Larry Robbins, MD, on TalkZone.com. Now, on another front, there was a study about an older drug called gabapentin, or the trade name is Neurontin, helping alcoholics maintain abstinence. They concluded that the drug gabapentin can reduce alcohol consumption and craving in patients who are being treated for alcohol. Gabapentin uh, used to be known mostly as Neurontin. It's an anti-seizure drug. It's frequently prescribed for pain, such as headaches or uh, nerve-type pains. Sometimes it's prescribed still for epilepsy, but most of its use was for pain. Initially, they thought it's an interesting drug. It's a very mild drug, very safe. Uh, It doesn't irritate in general liver or kidneys or hurt the stomach. Gabapentin is a nice, mild drug, and now that it's generic, it's a lot cheaper. And they thought that... um, it might help anxiety and even bipolar, but it has a mild effect on anxiety. More, it makes you tired. Sometimes it helps sleeping. But anything that might help alcohol, uh, the problem is we've had a lot of drugs that can help uh, alcoholics maintain abstinence, but we haven't had terrific new drugs. We're still really left with the most successful way to get off alcohol is um, is a really good solid program and going to meetings, having a sponsor, continuing in the program, and viewing it as a lifelong illness, which it really is. Now, Susie, uh, you've been in the addiction field. Uh, what do you think about alcoholics? You know, we all, everybody knows somebody in their lives who's had a drinking problem, and we all know how prevalent it is, uh, whether it's alcohol or some other kind of drug. You know, I I work mostly with young people, and I think... One difference that young people have to struggle with who have an addiction and are working to stay clean is the length of time that they have. That Let's say somebody's 20 years old 
and they've had a drinking problem and they stop drinking and they go through AA, you know, it's a long haul for them because they know they're barely adults and they've got a whole lifetime now to go through their life staying alcohol-free. And I, I think that's something that sometimes we forget about with young people is the the length of time that they are working towards maintaining their sobriety, which can be decades and decades. Um, another point that you know becomes acute for many people, whether it be alcohol or other drugs, but I think very much so alcohol because it is a, a drug that people in society do. Um, and can do legally is during the holiday season when there's such an abundance of food and parties and uh, getting together and alcohol that it makes it very difficult for people who want to be a part of the office party or the neighborhood cocktail party but know that it's very difficult to be there and not to drink. You know, it's interesting. I hear from alcoholics uh, a lot of excuses uh, around holiday times, etc. Well, everybody drinks, or well, we're having all these parties, and I think it's it's part of an excuse. But people who maintain sobriety or who drink moderately somehow manage to get through parties without getting absolutely blasted. You know, and I think it's like with any addiction. I smoked cigarettes for years, and years ago I quit. I I actually I've probably mentioned this a few times on this show, but I did go through a um. Uh, smoking cessation program. And at least for the first year or so, I had to really not put myself in positions where I knew it would be very hard to not smoke, especially if I was with friends who still smoked at the time, uh, going out in the evening. So I do understand for anybody who's, uh, working on stopping an, uh, stopping an addiction that there are certain situations mainly social, where you're going to be around other people who are partaking in the addiction that you are working to get off of, uh, it's really hard. And so sometimes you just have to step away and say, I just can't go there tonight. And I know there were many nights I could not go out with my old high school friends because I knew it would be too difficult. Yeah, I think you have to avoid those situations. And it's not just alcohol. How about eating? You know, I hear from traveling salespeople, for instance, that, uh, you know, they're 50, 60 pounds overweight, and they say it's just tough because their lifestyle, they're going out a lot at night, and they're eating a lot, and that's true. But, you know, to take the tough love devil's advocate side, uh, people who maintain <clears throat> their weight go out to eat a lot, and they just order right, and they eat small portions, and they do everything that they can. But it is a matter of uh, our lifestyle. I think certain lifestyles, if you're going out a lot with clients, it's tougher to maintain sobriety and to stay thin. You know, it occurs to me about alcohol that it's almost a hidden disease, too. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a fair amount of men and women, but housewives, for instance, in uh, out in the suburbs, your typical housewife, uh, there's a lot of alcoholics out there where nobody knows. Maybe the husband suspects, maybe the kids suspect, maybe friends suspect. But they're packing it away, and uh, it does impair them. Sometimes they'll pick up the other kids a uh, little looped uh, in the car. Uh, they're going to sleep really early. Sometimes it's not the amount of alcohol, really. Uh, some of them are packing away huge amounts and hiding it. But it's really how much that affects them. The, definite, the old definition of alcohol or addiction is 
whether it uh, really significantly affects your social or work life. And it's amazing to me in my practice how often I see somebody who's an alcoholic who's kept it hidden from me, from their spouse, for 5, 10, 15 years. Suze? You know, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I there are many, many people out there who are addicted to alcohol who still get up every morning and go to work. And they can maintain themselves during the day. They can get themselves up. They can earn the paycheck. They can provide for their family. Um, but then at the end of the day, all hell can break loose. But then they can get up the next morning and go to work again. Yeah, they're more of a functioning uh, alcoholic. And, you know, some people do need to hit bottom, lose everything before they'll get into treatment. But a lot of people will get into treatment earlier in the game. And I have had uh, patients who do reasonably well getting off of alcohol and staying off without a formal program. Uh, they have a therapist. They go to AA. Uh, they have some insight. But most people need the programs, but not always. If I had to choose between nothing and just seeing a therapist stopping on their own, uh, seeing a doctor getting some medicine, I think that can work too. I'd rather do that than do nothing. What doesn't usually work is the various uh, statements that people say, well, I'll just drink moderately, I'll just cut down, I'll just have it on weekends, or uh, this is it, I'm going to uh, drink this weekend, but that's the end. Uh, that almost never works. People need help with it. Now, on to uh, an interesting topic that we've touched on before, where spotlighting, the, the title of the research is Spotlighting a Teenager's Weight Does Fuel Unhealthy Eating. Overweight adolescents may be more likely to continue practicing extreme eating or weight control measures when their parents focus too much on weight issues. Family sit-down meals and regular eating may protect adolescents from continued weight-related problems, and the researchers said that they advise parents to talk less about weight and do more to make the home environment one where it's easy to engage in healthy eating and exercise behaviors. It's a tough, fine line that we have as parents with kids who are uh, overweight. They emphasize that frequent family meals a positive atmosphere at family meals, and frequent lunch eating appear to limit the risk for binge eating. You know, we've lost, a lot of families have lost the family meals. Uh, it seemed that in the 60s and 70s, what we ended up with were kids sitting in front of the TV and each kid sitting in front of their own TV. Uh, and the families were fragmented and rarely eating together. And now we have kids sitting in front of the TV or on the computer eating, and we do really lose something as a family. But it's a tough thing, uh, that fine line. We don't want to hit adolescents over the head with it, but if your kid is 25 or 30 pounds overweight or has the tendency, we don't want to ignore it either. I see with a lot of the kids as slowly growing into a healthier diet if we just talk to them here and there. But it takes a lot of education on parents' part, too, uh, also, you know, a lot of the country does not have any idea about fat and calories. Susie? You know, you're talking about the the education, the, the slow education of, of young adults learning to, 
begin eating more properly. One thing I see in our home is, and I, I experienced this myself growing up, is that during my youth and young adulthood, I could eat whatever I wanted and it didn't matter. I didn't put on the weight. But at some point, everybody's metabolism changes. Mine changed around the age of 40, and that's when I got a wake-up call and said, you know, you can't be eating all these sweets all the time. And, you know, it is hard to cut down, especially if you have a sweet tooth. Um, so, you know, I see with my kids, you know, they don't have the weight issue, but, you know, they are following in my footpath of pretty much eating what they want. And for them, too, it's going to change at some time for everybody. And so why not learn how to eat healthier earlier rather than when you have to? Well, yeah, it's interesting uh, I see a lot of patients who all of a sudden have a weight problem over a few years in their 40s or 50s, and they're in some sense at a disadvantage. Those of us who had to watch our weight or uh, we became overweight early in life, you know, we in general learned about calories and watched things, and we're sort of used to it. But people tell me uh, they're 50 years old and all of a sudden they're gaining weight because uh, their metabolism has slowed so much, and they say, you know, they really never had to watch it, and they're very upset. The other thing is people don't realize that the weight usually comes on more slowly. People say to me often, uh, you know, a year ago, I've gained 40 pounds in the last year. Uh, I was a size 4, and I look back in their records, and it really, they've gained 5 pounds in the last year. It's been more like 5 pounds for the past 8 years. So, People don't, who don't uh, weigh themselves don't always have an accurate recollection of how they've been the last five and ten years. The other thing is, you know, with this uh, way that we have of measuring obesity, BMI, um, it, it's really uh, an unfair measure in many people. Many people are not, I think that it overestimates obesity in the United States. And there's been articles on this. Uh, there are people who are 5 feet 11, fairly thick-boned, they have a thick frame, they don't have very much fat, they're 180 pounds, and they're considered obese by uh, the BMI. So I think that we tend to overestimate a little bit, but I don't want to underemphasize how much obesity leads to as far as every risk factor, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, and cancer, among other things. Now, I want to uh, segue and talk a little bit about steroids. We've had the big baseball steroid scandal where a lot of the baseball players were named and a lot were unnamed that we knew were doing steroids. You know, if you look at the bodies of the baseball players from uh, now versus 1970, they used to be little skinny guys in 1970, and they were doing some working out, and they were professional baseball players, but now they're big behemoths. Uh, and uh, we knew in the late 90s that a lot of these guys were doing steroids. There's no way physiologically that age 27 or 30 or 35 you gain that much muscle and uh, you certainly don't become all thickened up like a number of the players that uh, I knew were doing steroids. But I'm not that concerned about steroids in the pros, although in sports it does uh, sort of ruin it for all of us. Uh, not knowing uh, who's chemically enhanced or not. Although, you know, it's interesting. We have the steroid era now, but 
There were other eras in the past. There was the amphetamine era in baseball. And also, uh, hockey players. I was a huge hockey fan in the 60s and 70s. And um, turns out that all my great Blackhawk hockey players that I loved were uh, doing amphetamines and speed during the day. And they didn't know then that um, they were bad. Actually, a lot of the country was taking drugs then that they didn't know were bad, like amphetamines. Uh, heck, pregnant women were prescribed amphetamines as diet pills sometimes in the 50s, 60s. Um, and actually, some of these hockey players died early um, from uh, the amphetamines, and then they were drinking at night a lot to come down. So now we have the steroid era, and what do steroids do? Uh, they really they give you more energy. They help you recover from injuries faster. They help you work out day after day, instead of being able to work out once or twice a week on certain muscle groups, you could work out uh, four, five, six times a week on those muscle groups and work out harder and longer. You do build up muscles. Uh, they do work. They also wreak havoc from head to toe in every part of your body. They increase cancer risk. They cause hardening of the arteries and a whole host of other problems. Now, what I'm concerned about is steroids in high school kids and College kids, you know, there was, uh, the kids don't really understand the implications. There was an interesting poll of Olympic athletes a few years ago where, uh, they asked them, if you could win a gold medal and take this drug, but you'll die in five years, would you do it? And over 50% said, sure, I'll take it and die in five years. So I think that the mortality issue isn't really understood by a lot of young people, so they take steroids for self-esteem, to look bigger in the gym. Uh, the guys take steroids so they get big weightlifting, uh, and they think that they're going to become chick magnets by taking them when it's not true. And steroids kill your sex drive and ability to have sex anyways. So what can we do about steroids in kids? It, it's a big problem because if you're competing, say, on the football team, and our linemen in football used to be 180 pounds, um, in high school, and now a lot of the high schools are 250 to 300. They're the size that NFL players used to be. It, it's pretty ridiculous. So what can we do as parents and as coaches, and should we just accept that that's the way it is? I don't think so. Susie, what's your take? Well, it seems that what we're learning now more and more about steroids and what we're seeing with the professionals that we don't want to see this trickle down anymore to high school and college kids. So to me, it seems like one educate one piece of this would be more education as to what steroids do. Because if we all knew really what they do, we wouldn't be giving them to our kids because kids are getting them from adults one way or the other, whether it's parents, coaches, but they're getting them from older people. Um, and I think... The competitiveness of sports in high school has gotten out of hand in many sports, not just football. Whatever your kid has done, whether it be ice hockey or soccer, just to name two, football, baseball, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, the parents, just many parents, certainly not all parents, and certainly not most parents, but some parents take this, the winning as such a personal note of pride for themselves that um, we have to look hard at, at what's so, what is so important about always winning and then putting this on our kids. 
So I agree. The parents are part of it. Education's important. Uh, but you take a typical football lineman who's a freshman, and this comes up all the time. Say they're an average player, so they're competing to play and be first string. And the other kid is 210 pounds, and you're only 170 pounds. And you're heading into the s- summer before your sophomore year, say. So to compete, to be first string, it would help to take steroids, get up to 220 pounds or 210, be have all kinds of energy, big big and strong, uh, and you'll play. So how can we get that kid not to? Education's important, getting the parents on board and the coaches to watch out for it. Maybe we should do testing. You know, it's not a ridiculous idea. It's expensive. Um, if it wasn't so expensive, I think we more high schools, uh, more states would do testing. I know that some states do. New Jersey does does do testing. Uh, but most states don't do testing. Uh, it's very expensive, and it would be difficult to administer, but not impossible and not ridiculous. Now, Susie, as a mom and a social worker, you know, is it ridiculous? Uh, say your kid is a high school kid making them pee into a cup so that they're not taking steroids, or um, what do you think? As far as I'm concerned, it wouldn't bother me at all. I know a lot of people out there really would, but no, if it's something that everybody had to do and it was just part of being on the football team or whatever team it is, it'd be fine by me. But I think it would be hard for many people to, to do. And there's a lot of technical problems to overcome, too. Uh, we could test for some of the main uh, anabolic steroids. And we're talking about steroids. It's not prednisone and cortisone. Those are different types of steroids that people need for arthritis or allergic reactions. These are what we call anabolic steroids. Uh, But there's also human growth hormone. They need to develop a test for that because we know that a lot of football and baseball players are taking growth hormone, but it's not detected. Um, But they'll come up with a test for it pretty soon, I think. You know, it does get remarkably scientific. If you look at what, according to the grand jury and Balco records, uh, what Barry Bonds allegedly took, um, it, it's amazing. He allegedly took uh, seven things many days, not just steroids, but insulin and growth hormone and other things. So the science of it has progressed wildly while our testing has lagged back. But I think that we shouldn't bury our head in the sands and just ignore high school athletes and say, well, whatever goes. There are some people in our society who feel the same way with drugs, that we should laissez-faire, let's just let everything be legal. And also with steroids or whatever enhancers in pro athletes, etc., um, let's just let them do everything, and uh, we're all cheating in some way. If you take a pill before you go on the air, is a radio announcer cold pill while you're cheating a little bit or you take cortisone? But I think that that's not a great answer to just bury our head in the sands. What we'll end up with is a bunch of 400-pound people who are going to die at age 38, but they'll be good athletes, and that's not what we really want. Let's take a quick time out, but stay with us on TalkZone.com. Attention You're listening to TalkZone.com. Internet Talk Radio. TalkZone.com. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, 
Dr. Larry Robbins. Now, there was a quickie little article this week on measuring blood pressure at home. This is a big topic because as we get older, blood pressures rise, and they've redefined where high blood pressure is. It used to be, well, we wanted people under 140 over 90. 140 is the top number, 90 is the bottom. So 135, 130 over 85 was okay. Now we want it lower and lower. Every five points we lower it, on average, your risk for heart attacks and strokes goes way down. So this was an interesting article on the use of blood pressure monitoring at home. The gist was that we really should measure it at home versus just waiting to go into the doctor's office. What I like people to do is have an electronic arm cuff, not the finger or wrist cuff. They're not all that accurate. An electronic arm cuff and bring it into your doctor's office, make sure that it's working okay, but generally they work okay. They usually cost uh, 60 to $90, and it's much more accurate than once every six months in a doctor's office. A lot of people, they're rushing to get to their doctor, they're under stress, uh, maybe they were on the highway, they're worried, and it'll be up 10 points that day. And we don't want to make huge medical decisions with medicine that people are going to be on medicine for a whole year based on one little reading. So having the readings at home is crucial. If you have a family history... For high blood pressure, if yours is borderline, I would urge you to try to get a cuff and check it at home. Susie, if you had high blood pressure and a doc said, well, maybe get a blood pressure cuff at home, would you have objections? Would you hate doing it? What would you do? No, I I think it would be somewhat comforting to know that, you know, if you measure and there's a problem that, you know, you should go to the doctor sooner. My my guess would be that people, as they get older, would find it more comforting that they could do it at home. You know, we're always tweaking these medicines with blood pressure, and a lot of people, some people with blood pressure, one medicine simply helps. Other people need three medicines, and you just can't tweak it, get it, uh, you'll get it too high or too low if you just wait for a once a year reading in the doc's office. Now on to one of our favorite segments. Emails. Uh, the first email is for Susie. Um, some parents now seem more involved than when we were kids in the 60s. Uh, is this all good, or what do you think? I think that parents of the 60s certainly did seem to be doing more of their own thing and not honing in on their kids' lives as much as parents seem to be now. You know, certainly there's that's a statement that doesn't isn't for everybody and not every parent was like that in the 60s um but you know it seems like a lot of us as parents now who were growing up in the 60s will comment that boy our parents were sure parenting us differently than how we parent our own kids and you know i think part of it is is people are drawn to this big issue of safety and worrying about their kids all the time and that the kids of today for the most part do seem to be on a shorter leash than the kids of the 60s were. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that parents years ago were more separated, lived separate lives from their kids, which wasn't uh, all bad. Now they're more, in general, a lot of the parents are more enmeshed. They're much more involved, but they cross the line. They're best friends with their kids instead of being parents sometimes, or they're manipulating um Say a kid is trying out for cheerleading uh, in 7th or 8th grade or high school, uh, They'll uh, and they're competing with their other friends, 
you know, it used to be that the parents would stand back and let the kids sink or swim, but now sometimes they're calling the cheerleading coach and they're bringing them to the inevitable lessons on cheerleading beforehand uh, and really getting overly involved and enmeshed. And I think a lot of the parents' self-esteem issues come into it. Uh, they're living uh, and breathing through their kids' achievements or non-achievements, and it puts a lot of pressure on the kids. But I have to say, as a parent, it's very tough not to do this. You know, especially you see your kids suffering and you see the other parents doing it. Uh, in some areas of the country, some uh, areas are better than others for this. But uh, it's it's tough not to do, but I think it's very important not to do it or go over the top. There was a wonderful article on this uh, in the New York Times, November 29, 2007. You could do a search. The title was Helicopter Parenting Turns Deadly. Uh, helicopter parenting is parents who uh, their arms and their actions are flinging around like a helicopter blades. They're doing everything for their kids. They're running around. Uh, calling everything, and it, it just leads to kids who aren't functioning as well at age 20 or 25 as they should. Susie? You know, I think as you're talking about that article, it speaks to that there's no one certain reason why parents, why some parents have become these helicopter parents. I agree that part of it is due to the parents' own self-esteem or lack of, and that they're doing this to, to live vicariously through the... Um, the merits and and the good things that happen to their kids. And as I stated a few minutes ago, I think there is more of a safety issue now. Parents seem to be just more nervous about the overall welfare of their kids and where they are at all times, whereas many of us will remember as kids that we were out in the neighborhood and our parents had an idea of where we were but didn't know exactly where we were. And nowadays, all we have to do is drive by our local elementary school to see at 310 when uh, kids are let out of school, how many kids are being picked up by parents in their SUVs and how many kids are actually getting on a bus and going home on the bus? And that's changed dramatically in the last five, seven years where all of a sudden in our area, a lot of the kids, um, it's not good enough to take the bus. You have to be picked up by your parent. Now, a little bit people picking up their kids and being worried is uh, we're concerned about safety of our kids, and I, part of that is the media. I don't want to blast the media, but we see all the time on cable uh, about sexual predators, about predators, about kids being snatched, but there are um, articles indicating that we may not live in more dangerous world than uh, 50 years ago. There may not be more kids being snatched, et cetera, et cetera. It's just there in our face in the media all the time. Now, there was another email. Um, my son is 24 years old, and he's on Zoloft for anxiety. Shouldn't he be able to just deal with it? I don't remember 40 years ago that we needed medicines for situations like anxiety. Susie, what do you think about a 24-year-old on Zoloft for anxiety? Well, I- Forty years ago, we didn't have that medicine. So if somebody did have anxiety back then, they they wouldn't have been able to take something like Zoloft to help them with it. I say that if it helps the person and they're also seeing somebody to talk about it and just as importantly, maybe learning some behavioral techniques 
in how to deal with the anxiety when it comes up, I think it's okay. I think we can look at it that he's on Zoloft now and it's helping him, but he's also seeing somebody talking about it and learning some coping skills for it so that maybe he doesn't have to be on the Zoloft down the road. Now, one issue is people ask, what is anxiety? How do we define anxiety? You know, everybody feels anxious or worried at times, usually increased with stress. Uh, feeling very anxious or constantly worried without stress uh, chronically may be what we call generalized anxiety disorder. And there's a lot of symptoms of generalized anxiety, irritability, trouble concentrating, restlessness, uh, feeling keyed up, loss of patience. Uh, generally, we talk about two types of anxiety, worrying constantly where your brain's going, and then the inner feeling of anxiety like you're on caffeine. Uh, now, anxiety cycles in and out of people's lives. Sometimes it's worse, sometimes better. Uh, it can start in childhood often with separation anxiety. It's that five-year-old kid hanging on to mom's leg who does not want to go away when he's being dropped off. And there's a lot of differences in the brain, just like with depression, with anxiety. There have been scans where you can predict uh, who has anxiety versus who doesn't have anxiety. It's a very physical, genetic illness, and it's very treatable with exercise, medication, uh, yoga, psychotherapy, biofeedback. There's a lot of ways to treat anxiety that don't just involve medicine. But the medicines, the typical ones are the Zoloft, Prozac. They're called SSRIs. They increase serotonin. Serotonin seems to be low in people with anxiety. And then a lot of people do need what we call the benzodiazepines, the Xanax, Ativan, Valium-type medicine, which have been around a long time, and as long as people don't get addicted to them, uh, they're very good medicines. So my view is that um, anxiety is real. It's a genetic inherited illness, and we shouldn't just fluff it off, that people should just deal with it, because it does lead to a lot of decreased quality of life. Now, there was another article this week talking about pregnancy and backaches and evolution. And this was interesting. Pregnant women may stand out a mile away with their characteristic backward-leaning stance, that sway, that clumsy-looking position. But it turns out it's a unique adaption that uh, evolved over tens of thousands of years. The bodies of women do two things when they're pregnant. They adjust their stance to move the center of gravity and the lower vertebrae, the big bones, have evolved a distinct shape to allow this shifting to take place. Now, I don't think that this happens in men. Uh, we do get a lot of backaches in humans because we really weren't meant to walk on all twos. or We really were meant to walk on all fours physiologically. Uh, interestingly enough, the researchers said that nobody's ever thought of this, and it's true. Uh, what women do when their pregnancy reaches about half of the expected mass, they shift backwards. These differences in women are not seen in chimpanzees or other species outside of humans, so it seems to be unique to humans. And interestingly enough, men don't have this adaptation either, uh, and men don't seem, even with big bellies like a pregnant woman, to be able to adapt and get that sway. The researcher said that men are at a disadvantage because they can't do that with big bellies, unlike pregnant women. Of course, there's a relationship between having a big beer gut 
and having back pain, uh, and there's a relationship between uh, being pregnant and having back pain. Now, Susie, during pregnancy, did you have uh, much back pain? Well, you know, this is going back 18 years since my last pregnancy. But no, I didn't. Um, But, you know, it's interesting with pregnancy, just like most other conditions that somebody might be in, everybody has different things. You know, one person might have a back pain. Um, For me, my big issue was reflux or um, having fairly severe heartburn towards the end of the pregnancy where I had to sleep kind of almost sitting up. Um, so that's, that's pretty common, yeah. Yep, I'm sure it is. You know, as that baby gets larger, you know, it's playing havoc uh, in your stomach. So, no, the back pain was not an issue for me, but I can certainly see where a lot of people would have that. Uh, and I'm wondering, as we're talking about it, for how many women after the birth, I would imagine a lot that the back pain is alleviated, but there must be some that the back pain stays even after the baby's been born. Well, absolutely. Back pain is one of the more common problems in the country. Part of it is we really weren't meant to walk on uh, all twos, and um, being overweight adds to it genetically. A lot of back pain runs in families, but it's a huge problem. There's no easy solution. But you mentioned reflux with pregnancy. If you look at all the problems during pregnancy, I don't think we should ever let our kids forget what the mom went through with pregnancy. There's no statute of limitations on reminding your kid, even if they're 20 or 30 years old, on what you went through during pregnancy to bring them into the world. They ought to be eternally grateful. Well, that wraps it up. This is the Dr. Robbins Show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins with my co-host Susie Robbins. You can email us at doclarryrobbins at aol.com. You can find our email at our website, which is headache drugs, one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.